be seated. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you again that you have opened the way of access by the blood of your own dear son. And uh, we, we find that blood to be precious to us and of a great benefit to our souls. We find uh, in that blood a clean conscience and we are still seeking uh, to have our conscience cleansed by the blood, which is to say, O oh Lord, uh, we, we, we still hold on to, to a lingering doubt and a lingering guilt, which we should not if we are truly saved. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, that we might plainly find a forgiveness that is full and free and that can never be overturned so that our access and our approach would be one that is bold and confident and full of faith. But Lord, so long as we have to deal with sin on this earth and our own lives and, and the world that surround us, surrounds us, we ask you that you would uh, give us faith to overcome. We ask you that by the resources of the Spirit at work in us, we might continually be mortifying the sins of the flesh and repenting and seeking forgiveness. We pray that uh, the work of repentance would be a communal one, not just a personal one. Might it be done uh, so in households and in the church alike and even in society. Lord, we as Christians should have no difficulty saying, I am sorry, uh, let alone forgiving those who transgress against us. Lord, your forgiveness to us is so abundant. How could we ever hold the sin of another against them? Though we confess even this is hard because our hearts are not as forgiving as yours, even though our sense of gratitude ought uh, alone to spur us in this direction. And so, Father, we pray that more and more and little by little we might be made to resemble our Savior uh, in his his abundant forgiveness and, and forbearing spirit. Father, insofar as sin is still uh, a prevailing tendency in our lives in this way or that, we ask you, uh, we ask you to hear our prayer. We ask you to hear our confession. That is to say, we acknowledge it. We acknowledge to you that we are sinners. We acknowledge to you that we need mercy. We need great mercy every day. We need our conscience cleansed. We need to have the gift of forgiveness renewed to us, even if it is certain. We need you to give us the grace of repentance so that we might turn full of faith onward on the road to discipleship from our sins. Father, we want to be good disciples of your son. And gracious Savior, as we look to you as the head and the captain of our salvation, we ask you to lead us on unto glory, uh, full, of, full of faith and, uh, and, and uh, full of assurance, the assurance of hope, firm until the end. Again, as we think of the way by which this is achieved, the way that the Christian is to march onward to heaven, we realize that it is never to be done on its own, nor even in terms of his corporate existence in the church. It isn't the number of Christians or the, the, the strength of the army that makes the battle certain. It is simply who is our captain. Are we the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? Lord Jesus, you are triumphant. We are not. We would never look for salvation in Satan. We would never look for it in ourselves or in the world. We can only find it in you. We can only find salvation, which is full and free, gracious, powerful, able to save, able to bring the sinner into heaven. We want to deal with you. We want to deal with your blood and to draw near to God solely by your merits and your mercies. And so we ask you, gracious Savior, as you as as your heart goes out to the church and as your mercies and salvation flow freely and abundantly to the church, that we might uh, we might be cleansed, just to use the language of the passage, that we would be cleansed in order that we might serve the living God with a clean conscience. 
We want to worship you, Lord. We want to offer our all. We want to be uh, so full of zeal and thanksgiving that as we go forth into uh, the week and seek to live out and to walk the Christian walk, that you would you would cause every grace to abound in us. Uh, Father, uh, again, as we confess, the Christian life isn't so easy, but it is far easier when you have blessed us. And when we have a sense, especially through worship, that you are laboring in your own strength and in your own might for the salvation of your people. With that confidence, O oh God, we can face anything, any trial, any obstacle, any adversary. This indeed is the faith which overcomes the world. Would you graciously bestow it upon us? But then as we close out our prayer, we remember those words which you taught us to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As a scripture reading, I would like to look uh, together at Leviticus 17. And there's uh, a wonderful principle there. It's a bit of a difficult one, but it is so necessary. It all has to do with the blood, which is the great theme of the sermon. So listen to what is said in... uh, Leviticus 17, with special emphasis on verse 11. We looked at Leviticus 16 last time, as you remember. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to the man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them into the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting uh, to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. The priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statue to them throughout their generations. Then you shall say to them, any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, That man shall be cut off from his people. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. Here's the most relevant verse. Verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is by the blood Excuse me. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, 
nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. When any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening. Then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Let us stand now and sing the doxology. seated and then turn with me if you would uh, to the back of your hymnal page 634 Psalter selection 36 which is Psalm Read on with me in the bold. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covered them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with, flame, with fatness. Uh, they, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither and uh, a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. 
How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, for lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Uh, let us praise the Lord now uh, by standing together and singing him 411. We go on with our study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, uh, as well as verse 22. 
little bit uh, of a strange procedure. I almost never do this, but I'm taking a break in the text. Verses 11 through 28 uh, really form one unit, but it's far too much text to take as one sermon. Uh, And so we'll be taking it uh, in somewhat of a strange order uh, and, and, uh, and possibly breaking the verses up in different ways as we look at it at uh, these verses under three sermons. You'll see what I mean. Uh, let's look at those verses then. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 and verse 22. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those Uh, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then skipping down to verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we are thankful indeed for your word uh, read and now ask that through the preaching you might shed great light upon your word, that you might bring these truths home to the hearers with greater conviction and greater boldness uh, and even in a transforming way. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, the verse which I uh, tacked on, you might say, or added to the reading, verse 22 makes a claim which deserves our attention and which which explains also what is being said in verses 11 through 14. That claim, verse 22, is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And obviously, as sinners, that is the kind of claim which ought to interest us for two primary reasons. The first being that uh, we would want to have forgiveness, obviously, and we would want to have the kind of forgiveness offered to us that really did assure us that our sins were forgiven. Well, that's the kind of thing we find in the blood of Jesus, I hope to show you. Uh, But secondly, the principle is important for this obvious reason, and that is because we as Christians uh, locate our salvation specifically, though not entirely, at the cross. We find at the cross and the shed blood there the gift of forgiveness and of eternal life. And so making so much of the cross, it behooves us as Christians to understand what it was that made the cross necessary for our salvation and why it was that our Savior shed his blood for us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Not only do we find that here, but we also found it in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, which we read earlier, that the atonement is found in the blood. Which is to say positively what is said negatively here, that the atonement for sin can be found nowhere else. Only there. And so this is the great principle I want to explore this morning. Namely, the significance of the shed blood, which atones for sin. In the verses we're presently considering, we find that blood is unquestionably the key word. It occurs twice in verse 11. Once in verse 13 and once in verse 14. And then repeatedly after that in verses 15 and following. The fundamental assertion of these four verses, verses 14 through, uh, verses 11 through 14, excuse me, uh, and then explained in verse 22, is once more stated in terms of a contrast. The contrast between the old and the new, as we've seen, is the characteristic manner of argumentation 
uh, in Hebrews, contrasting what we have in the new versus what was present in the old. And this is how he states it here in, in summary, what the blood of bulls and goats could not do, the blood of Christ does or can do. And so it's stated like this, for instance, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ uh, do the sorts of things he says in that verse? Three things we'll see. Well, actually, in all of the verses, three things in all of the verses, verses 11 through 14. How much more will the blood of Christ bring in these blessings? Or in verse 12, we see what he gains by his priestly service that no priest ever did. He entered into the true holy place and obtained an eternal redemption. It's all so marvelous, but you see, it all depends on the blood in every instance. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood. Again, that is the great assertion being made here. And before we go into this, I want to notice a basic division which occurs uh, in verses 18 through 28, uh, 11 through 28, excuse me, uh, a basic division of ideas in this single unit of text. Three main ideas. The first is the tabernacle, which you see is spoken of here uh, straight away in verses 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That same thought occurs again at the end of the chapter, verses 23 through 26. I won't read that now, but you find it expounded in a greater way. The place where he enters, the heavenly sanctuary. That's the first major idea in these verses. The second major idea is the blood of Jesus Christ, which we find here being stressed, especially in verses 11 through 14. But the idea of blood continues throughout the chapter, as for instance, uh, in verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Well, he's saying Jesus enters the holy place with his own blood. And again, as I said, you find the idea of blood and the word itself occurring throughout all of these verses, verses 11 through 28. The third major idea is that of the covenant, which is the prominent idea of the middle section, verses 15 through 22. We see there that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And the word covenant becomes the prominent word uh, in those verses. We should recognize, obviously, as I've been stressing, that this is one unit. And so the three ideas blend together very naturally. The idea of the tabernacle, the blood, and of the covenant. And in speaking of one, we will invariably have to speak of the other but for the purposes of preaching, we will separate them under the following divisions. The first sermon, which is this sermon, is the blood of Christ, verses 11 through 14 and verse 22. The second sermon will be that of the covenant, verses 15 through 22. And the third sermon will be uh, concerning the tabernacle, verses 23 through 28. But also verses 11 and 12 obviously apply there as well. Well, as I say, the ideas, and I want to stress this repeatedly, the ideas belong together. In considering the blood, we'll have to consider the tabernacle as, for instance, verse 12. He did, he did not enter uh, the old tabernacle, but he entered the new one. Not through, he says, the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all. The blood and the tabernacle going together. In considering the covenant, 
we will have to consider the blood in the next sermon. Therefore, even the first covenant, verse 18, was not inaugurated without blood. And even verse 22, which we're including in this sermon, occurs in that section. Without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. He's expounding the covenant. And so you can't isolate the ideas too much. But as I say, for the purposes of preaching, we will do it insofar as we can, beginning with the blood as our primary consideration. And concerning the blood... There are three questions which we are able to ask and which we find answered in uh, the present passage. The first question is this, whose blood? You see, in many ways, that is the fundamental question. Verses 11 through 14 are a statement which distinguish the blood of one from another. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, he says, but through the blood of Jesus. It's a distinction. The same distinction which you find not only in verses 11 through 14, but again in verses 24 and 25. And so there is a basic distinction which is present. And the purpose of putting it like this is to say, consider whose blood we are dealing with. Not the blood of the old, but the blood of the new. Well, consider uh, first the blood of the old. The weakness of the old covenant and its priesthood to atone for sin inwardly becomes apparent just as soon as you see whose blood it was that was shed. The blood of animals, which is stated emphatically in chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is to say, if forgiveness is what you were looking for, you would never find it under the old covenant and its priesthood. And of course, who could have ever doubted this? As I've suggested before, even the priests who were offering those sacrifices under the old covenant, it must have been obvious to them as well. Because it is something that is self-evident. That God in his holiness would never be satisfied with such an offering. That the blood of bulls and goats could never wipe away the stain of sin or satisfy the righteousness of God. It's self-evident. It's obvious. Nor could it ever uh, pacify my own conscience, giving me a sense that I am now at peace with God. Verse 9 from last time. The sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. I am left with this remaining uh, terrible sense that I am still wrong with God, even though their blood was shed. And as I say, even the high priest must have had this sense The point is so obvious, and it was meant to be obvious. The Holy Spirit was indicating something by these sacrifices. Not that atonement could be found there, simply that atonement must be found in the blood. And also that by the weakness of those bloody sacrifices, a better sacrifice was required. But suppose we are convinced of this principle, as illustrated in the Old Covenant, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness, but equally that a true and perfect sacrifice of blood would actually succeed in bringing in forgiveness, a principle we will consider next. Then all that is left for us to do is to find a sacrifice that actually achieves this, uh, or to put it a little differently, to find one whose blood is able to do this. And this is exactly what we find in the blood of Jesus, he is saying. What is being said here is that in precisely the way the blood of bulls and goats failed, his blood succeeded. What they could not do by their blood, he could do by shedding his. 
And in making this assertion that his blood is essentially different from the blood that was shed under the old covenant, that his blood is able to achieve what the blood of the old sacrifices never could, we merely need to ask the question, why? What is it about the blood of Jesus that makes it so? And here we merely need to consider what is true of him as a person. And you will see what is true of his blood. Who is Jesus? That is really uh, the great question. This is a book which is devoted uh, to a single subject. uh, To unfolding and expounding to us the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But before it ever makes that assertion. Or says a single word about his priesthood. An entire chapter is devoted to. To the question of who he is, essentially as a person. Chapter 1 is devoted in its entirety to answering that question. And only as we come to chapter 2 does he begin to unfold the subject of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Yes, but who is he? He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That is the leading assertion of the epistle, if you go to the opening three verses. And then see how that thought is unfolded throughout chapter 1. Because he is the son of God, he says he is better than angels, chapter 1, verse 3. And so he is exalted above them because unlike them, he is uncreated, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He is an eternal person, the very son of God. He is the object of eternal praise, chapter 1, verse 6. It is he who created the world, chapter 1, verse 10. And it was for him that the world was made. And so he is set above it as its Lord and King, verses 8 and 13 of chapter 1. I'm just summarizing this without going into the trouble of reading that entire chapter. So that's who he is. And we as Christians ought to be clear about that. Jesus is the Son of God. But the amazing thing that is being stated in the book of Hebrews and that we discover at the cross in which we find salvation is that he should have any blood to shed. An angel, perhaps. A man, definitely. But him? He who made the world and who rules it and whose years have no end. Yes, him. It is Jesus who is the Son of God who also became the Son of Man and who shed his blood and died for our sins on the cross. That is, in essence, uh, the gospel in a nutshell, beloved. And it is, uh, in many ways, uh, well, let me take away that qualification. It is the most startling claim in the gospel. Uh, It is the most difficult doctrine uh, for any man to accept that God became man in order to shed his blood for me. And yet that is exactly what we find in Jesus Christ. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And even as he dwelt among us, so he suffered and died and shed his blood for me. In doing so, he partook of our nature. Which becomes the argument of chapter two uh, in here in the book of Hebrews that for a little while he who was above angels in every conceivable way became lower than them in order to partake of our nature, dwell on this earth, suffer and die. That is in order that he might shed his blood as an offering for sin. Chapter two, verses uh, 10, 14. uh, Well, let me just read them. Chapter two, verse 10. It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. In other words, how could God ever bring about our salvation except through shedding the blood of his own son? And how could his son ever shed his blood unless he should become one like us? 
Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he says, verse 14, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so the point becomes this. Seeing that Jesus Christ, the son of God, became a man, suffered, died, shed his blood for me. Seeing whose blood it is we are dealing with, he is telling us in chapter 9, we should have no difficulty in accepting that if he should shed his blood for me, then my sin is really dealt with. Again, the question which is being answered here, whose blood? The answer is Jesus, the son of God. For it must be evident to me that his blood must be of eternal worth and power, especially in the eyes of God. So that when God says to the sinner, you are reconciled by the blood of my own dear son and nothing less than that, we should have little difficulty believing it is so. Yes, Jesus' blood is able to atone for my sin. Of course it is. But that leads on to the second question. In some ways, a more perplexing question, if such a thing were even possible. Why blood? I have little difficulty in seeing that if he should shed his blood for me, great things must come as a result. But I am not altogether clear why blood was necessary in the first place. And so long as I entertain questions as to this thought, I may perhaps be less willing to deal with his blood and accept his blood as the basis of my salvation. What we are considering here again is what is said in chapter 9 verse 22. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And to put it even stronger, there can be no forgiveness. Now, again, here I must confess, and it ought to surprise uh, no one at this point, that in in exploring uh, the meaning and the precise force of this phrase, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I was greatly helped by Hugh Martin in his book. He devotes a major portion of the book to that simple phrase, why blood was necessary he, he asks this question, why should God not remit the sins of men without an atonement? And frankly, that is a question we should all have a ready answer to, since once again, it is our most basic and fundamental claim as Christian people that salvation is found at the cross of Christ, and that through the shedding of his blood, uh, forgiveness flows to us full and free. But why was that necessary? Why was it necessary that he should shed his blood for me? In other words, why not another way? A God who is so full of mercy, grace, and love. Could he not possibly find another way than by not sparing his own dear son for us? Think of it. Why not God in his infinite mercy just let the sinner off? Why not declare as he does in Jeremiah 31... And as is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, simply that he will pardon our sins and he will remember them no more. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, uh, a quotation from Jeremiah 31. In other words, why not, why not simply by a mere fiat? A simple declaration that it is so, that our sins are pardoned, that they are remembered no more, and so it is without the shedding of blood. And there is a very simple answer for this. And it is supplied here. 
in chapter 9, verse 22, that there is no forgiveness and that there can be no forgiveness, no letting off of the sinner without the shedding of blood. We might be tempted to think that this, too, is something arbitrary, as though God simply decided this would do, that this would be an appropriate expression of his desire to be merciful, the shedding of blood. But that's not right either. Nor is that what is being said here when he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What is being stated here is an absolute and inflexible principle in the government of God, that without shedding blood, there can be no forgiveness, not even from God himself. That if God should be merciful to us as sinners, he could be merciful in no other way than this. And this is a point in reality about which we should not be in any difficulty. Ask yourself, how can I as a sinner find forgiveness if not by shed blood? Where is there any forgiveness or sense of forgiveness without an atonement? Is such a thing even conceivable? Can God honestly tell the sinner, your sins are put away as far as the east is from the west, without any proof that it is so, that his wrath is pacified, his justice satisfied, and the blood of sin removed? And could my conscience ever accept this as true? I think we already know the answer. The answer is no. No, this could never satisfy God, nor could it ever satisfy me. What I need is for God to act in such a way that I see that my sin is really dealt with. Anything less will never satisfy me, nor would it satisfy God and his infinite justice. And it is with respect to this realization that God must act for my salvation Otherwise, there can be no salvation and that God must ratify his covenant of forgiveness by some action. Otherwise, there can be no covenant that the statement is made once again without shedding of blood. There can be no or or there is no forgiveness. But still, we are left with the question, why blood in particular? What is it about the blood that ratifies and seals And achieves the covenant of forgiveness. And this too is not difficult to answer. It is because the law itself is what sin has violated. And it is the law that declares that the soul that sins shall die. And remember this about the law. The law isn't something arbitrary. The law isn't something that God simply decided would be. The law is an expression of who he is. And how he feels about sin. If you want to know how God regards our sin and what he is determined to do about sin, namely to punish it, then you find you find it in the law or you discover this in the law. It is the law that declares the soul that sin shall die, an expression of what is in God. This, too, is an inflexible principle. It is, as Martin says, an absolute moral necessity. Something to which our consciences as well testify plainly. The wages of sin is death. We know it to be so. There can be, therefore, no expiation, no removal of sin, as implied in the idea of remission, until sin is actually punished judicially. Until the 
until the demands of the law placed upon the sinner by God himself are satisfied and met. Which is why God cannot simply let the sinner off and say, your sins are forgiven. I've forgotten them by a mere declaration without action. No, the demands of the law must be met. Otherwise, God cannot be God. Since the law is an expression of who he is and how he feels. And that isn't something that God can set aside or forget or overturn. So God in his desire to be merciful and to remember our sins no more as he expresses in Jeremiah chapter 31. Does not propose to set aside his own law. He proposes rather to deal with our sin in a way that honors his law. Which is to say himself. That is the only way to conceive of the solution. One which really honors God as just and righteous, but also as a merciful and a loving God. A solution that is that expresses all that he is and all that he desires to be. That is what is being said in chapter 9, verse 22, when he says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Listen to how Hugh Martin puts it. Speaking of God, and he's speaking of this, uh, this verse in particular. He does not propose to tolerate my sin, to let it pass, to let me off. He proposes to expiate my sin, to make an end of it, to execute all the vengeance due to it, and then bring me near to himself in holy peace and fellowship forever. Unto this end, he sends forth his own beloved son to link his destiny with mine, to link his person with mine, to take my sins as his own and bear them in his own body on the tree till he satisfy every demand of justice In the shedding of blood, in the sacrifice of Christ, I see the glory of God's nature as holy and the inflexible and righteous demand of his justice against sin. And I see also a love which proposes to remit an offense, an evil, so great that it deserves eternal woe. I see a love so great as to provide what justice demands, a full satisfaction to make remission righteous. And so this is the assertion of scripture, not just in Hebrews, but elsewhere. That it is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. That brings with it the forgiveness of sins. It is the blood which justifies the sinner. It is the blood which cleanses him and makes him perfect in the sight of God, wiping away the stain and the blood of sin. It is the blood, therefore, Which makes the sinner acceptable to enter into the presence of God and even to draw near full of faith and confidence. And so we have such statements as these in the language uh, of scripture. For instance, what we will see in the Lord's Supper. Forgiveness is located in the blood of Christ. It is the blood which secures this blessing and which causes it to flow to the believer. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Speaking of the cup. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 9. That we're justified by his blood. That is we're declared to be righteous and acceptable in the sight of God. Not by our own works. Not by our own contrition for our sin. Solely by the blood of Jesus. So to hear. How much more will the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself. Without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When nothing else will do, the blood of Christ will. Which brings me to the third point, and that is the third question. 
Not simply whose blood and why blood, but what is secured thereby. What does the blood of Christ achieve or obtain? And we can break this under three headings, which we find uh, in verses 11 through 14. The first point, which we consider, can consider very briefly because it will become the focus of the third sermon. He has secured entrance into the true tabernacle, which is to say into heaven itself. The true holy of holies in which God dwells and in which we find the throne of grace. Which is actually the first statement which is made in verses 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered into heaven itself by his blood and the place he secures for himself there and for all those whom he represents as a high priest is eternal. In other words, he enters not year after year as with the old priests, but once for all by the strength of his own blood. And so he's able to do what no priest ever could, namely enter into heaven itself And stand in the presence of God forever. And so long as he stands there. Ministering on behalf of the elect. That is to say. So long as his place there. As our great high priest. Is an acceptable one to God. So long shall our place there be secure as well. The believer need not ever fear. That God is against him. Or that he is unable to draw near. Not so long as Christ is there ministering on his behalf. To rob the believer of heaven now. Would require nothing less than an overthrow of Christ's priesthood. Which we know is impossible. Second. He achieves or obtains an eternal redemption. Again you ask how does he do so? Answer by the blood. Through his own blood he tells us verse 12. He's able to enter into the heavenly tabernacle, having secured an eternal redemption or having obtained an eternal redemption. Amazing to think, but his blood achieves nothing less than this, an eternal salvation. In other words, his eternal priesthood and perfect sacrifice do not bring meager portions to me. They bring to me such a fullness and meet my needs so well as a sinner that words can hardly express how richly I am blessed by him. The salvation which he achieves and brings to me as my great high priest is perfect and complete. And so it is not enough to speak of my salvation seen in connection with his priestly work on my behalf in plain and simple terms. Until we can speak of our redemption from sin as eternal, as unshakable, as unalterable, as an anchor for the soul in heaven. We still have not fully grasped the virtue of his priesthood and what he has secured by his blood for me. Indeed, it is equally wrong for this reason to speak of his blood as that which makes salvation possible for me. No, what a meager view that is. What an insult to the power and efficacy of that blood, the love and the power it represents and conveys by offering himself. He does not merely make salvation possible. He actually achieves it. What he achieves is not savability, but salvation itself. And so, when God declares, as he does once more in Jeremiah chapter 31 
and as is recounted in Hebrews chapter 8, that he will pardon our sin and he will be merciful and he will remember our sins no more. We know it must be so. For if Christ should shed his blood for me, then it cannot be otherwise. God would be unjust still to hold my sin against me, to remember my sin and to deal with me as a sinner. No, now that Christ has shed his blood for me, he must make my sin to pass. For Christ's blood is what has made it so. And God will surely honor the work of his own dear son. But there is something else. As we see at the end of verse 14, and that is that his blood is able, as he says, to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In fact, he states it emphatically again, speaking of the abundance of salvation, not the meager portions, but the abundant measure by which he secures an eternal salvation to us. So, too, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit cleanse your conscience from dead works. To serve the living God. How much more will he do so. Than anyone else could or can. We have here another statement as we saw last time. In fact it was the main emphasis of the sermon. About the conscience. Which as we saw last time. The blood of bulls and goats could not assuage. There was no uh, ability or efficacy. In those old sacrifices to cleanse the conscience. To give the sinner a sense or any sense that he was now at peace with God, that God and he were reconciled and that God through that blood had caused his sin to pass. Even though the blood of bulls and goats had been shed, the sense of sin remained. The sense of the guilt of sin remained. There is the dilemma in a nutshell under the old covenant, even for the high priest. But look at what is being said here. When we as sinners are able to deal with God on the basis, not of the blood of bulls and goats, but on the basis of Christ's blood. What do I find? I find inwardly that my heart affirms that God is now reconciled. Because I know that the blood of Christ has cleansed the stain of sin. That is the testimony of my conscience. I find in his blood true remission. True pardon and peace. I find every reason to believe that God has really put away my sin and reconciled me to himself. I find in his blood not the possibility of remission, but remission itself. And so I go to God on this basis, not feebly, not with any sense of fear or dread or entertaining doubts that perhaps the stain of sin remains, but full of confidence and faith. That through his blood, I too am able to draw near to the throne of grace, just as surely as he went before me there. And there I find a God, not full of hostility and wrath, but a God whose wrath has been thoroughly pacified. And in seeking to deal with God on the basis of his blood, God and I are reconciled, just as surely as Paul said in Romans chapter 5 verse 9, justified by his blood, reconciled. Acceptable in the sight of God. And so I find now not only that God has let me off, but that he delights in my service, that he accepts me and he delights in me every bit as much as he accepts and delights in his own dear son. With a clean conscience, I go to him and offer my sacrifice of praise and obedience 
God and me are thoroughly reconciled. We are on friendly terms. We are at peace. All of this is assured to me by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ's blood answers every claim of God's law and of my conscience. Whatever objections they may have had that my service to God was once unacceptable, they do not stand now. No, not now that Christ's blood is shed, uh, has been shed for me, and now that I seek to deal with God on the basis of that blood. And he, by that blood, now has opened up access into heaven itself, by which I am able to draw near. You will forgive me if I quote Hugh Martin once more when he says, speaking of the conscience is pacified by Christ's blood, bringing with it a confident access into the holy presence of God. And I will I will close with this. This is what the conscience declares. Deal thus with sin. Extinguish it forever. Make a holy, perfect end of it. Yea, annihilate it. Then I am placed on terms of peace, security, liberty and honor with my God. I feel my heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, dreading nothing from his righteousness, filled with his love abundantly. This is remission now. This is true redemption now. Even the forgiveness of sins through his blood. Amen. And I would ask uh, Elder David Stevens now to join me at the table now as we have yet another instance to deal with the blood. The main thing I want to emphasize about the Lord's Supper, given all that I've said, uh, is how uh, the Lord's Supper is to be seen in connection with the blood of Christ. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. From Matthew 26, and we read this in the sermon, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup, given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this, this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Well, uh, the point which I was making in the sermon is, uh, as Jesus clearly states here, is that forgiveness is found in the blood. That is a point about which we should we should have a ready answer and a clear sense as Christians that we are able uh, to deal with God on the basis of his blood and that in his blood we find a remission of sin that is perfect and complete. So I don't have to keep striving to be acceptable to God by my good works. It's, it's a wonderful discovery of the Reformation or rediscovery, we should say. Uh, Paul had discovered it long before Luther ever did, uh, that if I deal with God on the basis of Christ. Uh, then I am perfect and complete in him. And that casts the whole Christian life in an entirely new light. Now I live a life of thanksgiving and praise, not one of ceaseless toil and striving after his love and acceptance. And so thank God for the blood of Christ. Look at what it achieves and what it accomplishes. Uh, It should be every bit as precious and valuable to us as it is to God. If God finds forgiveness full and free in the blood, so should we. But here's the interesting statement. That Christ connects the blood which forgives to the cup. As he holds the cup, he says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
And here we find, I just want to state very briefly, uh, a little debate that broke out in the Reformation, or maybe it wasn't so little, uh, between Zwingli and Luther. And it is the significance of the word is. When he says of the cup, and I'll just enact it as much as I can, this is the blood, or my blood, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is he saying? Well, we cannot doubt at the very least that he is drawing a very strong association between his blood which forgives and the wine which we drink. No question there. The question is only how strong is the association. For Luther, when Christ said, this is my blood, that was it. That settled the matter. He wasn't interested in the philosophical speculations of the Roman Catholic Church, the doctrine of transubstantiation. He also wasn't interested in what Zwingli had to say when he said, and I am in agreement with Zwingli, that is means signifies. That this is a representation, it is a sacramental representation. It stands in the closest possible relation with the blood of Christ. But it would be folly to think that Christ, in holding the cup, actually meant that this was his blood, since we know it is instead a cup of wine. And so setting aside what Luther believed, he said, by faith we simply believe it, even if we can't understand it. I'm not making that assertion. I am saying, believing, that is, that this is in fact the blood of Christ. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it stands in the closest possible relationship to the blood of Christ. And so that in dealing with the cup and in dealing with the bread, what we are dealing with is Christ in his saving work on the cross. And this is one of the ways by which he enables us to deal with God, as I said in the sermon, on the basis of the blood. Not our own dead works, which can never cleanse our consciences, but only through his blood. And so as we, uh, as Christian people, are seeking to deal with God on that basis... And to enjoy the gift of forgiveness and to be assured that that gift is really ours and not always doubting that it is really so. We find uh, great value uh, in the bread, the bread and the cup. We regard them as something which is sacred. We, as I say, closely associate them with Jesus Christ and his body and blood sacrificed. We find the gift of forgiveness renewed and refreshed to us. Sealed to us, to use the language of Romans chapter 4, we find the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. The point being, if we wish to deal with God on that basis, then we should be eager for the, the cup and, uh, and the bread. We should be thankful, even though it makes worship a little bit longer, uh, to be doing it on a more regular basis. Since, again, Christ is saying, uh, here, are, here is my body and my blood offered for you. But that also, on the other side, clarifies the warning which I ought to give, and that is, if the blood of Christ is not that with which you are seeking to deal with God, then uh, the bread and the cup are not for you. As he describes, the, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, it would be a tragedy for us, having dealt with the blood, then to trample it underfoot. I think one of the ways that we might do that is by profaning the table, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 11. Coming to the table in an unworthy manner, profaning the body and the blood of Christ, uh, whether by our own sin or our own irreverence, uh, but coming in faith looking for forgiveness in his blood, uh, I assure you it can be found there. And so I hope uh, that clarifies both for whom and and, and, uh, otherwise uh, those not for whom the table uh, is meant. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of the sacrifice of Christ. We praise you that 
By his shed blood, we are forgiven. We have the gift of forgiveness. We have not only that, but we have a real assurance of the gift. We have a sense that nothing can ever rob us of it. But we find at the same time that sin creeps in, doubt creeps in, and we need you to further assure us, not to reconcile us to you afresh, but to just give us a fresh sense that we are reconciled. And week after week, we look for that. We find it at the table. We pray it would be so to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. She and I have to do this twice, so <laughs> sometimes a second run, uh, brain gets a little tired. So, Our Lord Jesus, beginning with the bread, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this bread to you. Our Lord Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. As a reminder, the outer ring 
is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now, as we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing hymn number 195.
Receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.